Hello and a very warm welcome to Future Curious, the podcast from Nesta, packed with ideas, provocations, glimpses into our shared future and hopefully stimulating the parts others can't reach. Today we're looking at one of the economic phenomena of our time, the knowledge economy, and how it might be changed for the better. If economic eras are defined by their most advanced form of production, then it could be said that we live in a knowledge economy, one where knowledge plays a decisive role in the organisation of production, distribution and consumption. It's grown hugely over the last few decades, but how broadly are the benefits being shared? That's the question we're going to be talking about today. Joining me to talk about this uh, are Madeleine Gabriel and Isaac Stanley, authors of a new report called Imagination Unleashed, Democratising the Knowledge Economy, both of them from Nesta's inclusive innovation team. And later on, we'll be hearing from one of the world's leading thinkers in this area, Professor Roberto Unger, political philosopher and former Brazilian Minister of Strategic Affairs. Madeleine, first of all, could you talk us through how you define the knowledge economy? Well, I mean, the term knowledge economy has been around for ages, probably since the 50s. And it really talks about an economy, as you said, where knowledge plays a really important part in producing new goods and services. So just to make that feel practical, um, in the UK, um, if you think about sectors like software, pharmaceuticals, biotech, and the creative industries, they can all be seen as knowledge economy industries. Um, But I suppose one thing that we talk about a lot with Roberto Unger and in the report that we'll discuss later is that the knowledge economy is not just about sectors, it's about a form of production. So we contrast it with mass production that came before it. And in contrast with mass production, knowledge economy is much more about autonomy. So individual workers have a lot of um, space for creativity. Um, it's not so hierarchical in the same way that mass production would have been. Um, and it's also about the imagination playing a key role. So in mass production, you might have seen workers as more like an extension of machines, whereas in the knowledge economy, workers are very different from machines. So machines can do what we can reproduce and workers, you know, humans have to provide something different, which is their imagination and their ability to to kind of um, think of things that don't yet exist. Mm. So where in the in the kind of a previous phase of, 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 of mass production, there might have been quite a sharp distinction between conceiving things, coming up with new ideas, and then going out to the production line and and, and recreating them at mass scale. In the knowledge economy, what you start to see is a bit of a breakdown between that, that clear distinction. So in the process of production, the people involved in producing start to be able to, um, in a more iterative way, change what they're doing. And, and so use the powers of their own imagination rather than being as Madeline working in a machine-like way. Yeah, so we can all become inventors, basically. (laughs) Sounds kind of utopian, doesn't it? But it's not that way at all, as (laughs) we will uh, discover today. Mm. Um, But before we get on to the problems uh, that the knowledge economy has thrown up and no one really expected, um, how important is it for the economy of, say, the UK? Uh, I mean, everyone hears that, you know, we are this sort of knowledge society and and we hear about services being hugely important to the economy. But can we just put that into context? Yeah, I mean, so really knowledge economy industries are where we see employment growth and productivity growth coming from. So if you look at the last few years, um, things like pharmaceuticals have increased productivity by about three times, whereas um, it's barely increased at all in some more traditional industries. I mean, Nesta's recently done some mapping of the creative economies, um, and we can see that employment over the last five years grew on average twice as much in creative industries as the rest of the local economy. So it's really sort of driving um, growth and productivity. 
what proportion of the, the the workforce is is involved in that? Have, have, have studies been done around those kinds of areas? Um, it, one one thing that's really challenging about this area is to define it really tightly. <laughs> and so uh, studies tend to be done on sectors rather than knowledge economy as a whole. But I've seen some estimates that have said about twenty five percent of the people in the UK are employed in knowledge economy industries. Wow. So up to one in four people in some way or other is related to a knowledge economy. So hugely important. Well, you would think, therefore, that great, one in four people employed that way, um, bonus to everyone. But um, that's not quite the case, as we're going to come on to find out. Can you just give us uh, an overview um, of why it's not as, as rosy as it might? seem first of all what are the kinds of problems it throws up well i mean we have this phenomena of what we call the confinement of the knowledge economy so this kind of advanced form of production that we're talking about which is more important than the kind of the gadgets and and, and the technologies by which we sometimes recognize it this hasn't spread throughout the economy it's remained kind of confined within certain firms in certain places so although it's not just in certain sectors we see it, we do see it across sectors. In each sector, we see it concentrated in just a, a few small, powerful firms. And the, the consequence of this is that the, the gap between those small, powerful firms and, and everyone else gets wider with implications for, for, for inequality and also stagnation, because although kind of innovation and productivity increasing in those more powerful firms, as, 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 as the hinterland is getting left behind, the aggregate effect is is less productivity. So this is both a, a social as well as a geographic kind of leaving behind gaps and things. Is that is that is that true to say? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think we can talk about problems um, relating to diversity in the knowledge economy. So, um, you know, one measure of the knowledge economy might be um, innovation measured through patents. So if you look at who, who are the innovators, you can see that that's not a diverse group of people. It's like really concentrated amongst particular groups, particular social backgrounds backgrounds, um, gender, um, you know, we know that over the last 25 years or so, only 8% of people filing patents in the UK are women, for example. So we've got the kind of very narrow group of, of people involved in, in sort of the forefront of the knowledge economy. And then similarly, as Isaac said, um, there's a concentration in places and among particular types of firms as well. So I talked about productivity growth. Actually, if you see, if you look at which firms are most um, most productive and the, the, whose productivity is growing, it's a relatively small number of big, powerful, very productive firms. And they tend to be concentrated in specific places. Um, so you could look somewhere like Cambridge, where there's some nearly 5,000 knowledge economy businesses, and it's the most innovative city in the UK. But, you know, those um, benefits then don't necessarily spread to uh, other parts of the country. So you sort of find these places that are really at the forefront and really pushing ahead of the rest and and other places getting left behind. In some countries, they talk about having a two-speed economy to describe that phenomenon. So you've got those real sort of thrusting, technological, highly productive, fast-growing firms and then kind of everyone else. (laughs) Now, Professor Roberto Unger is a Roscoe Pound professor at Harvard Law School and a former strategic affairs minister for Brazil. Earlier, Nesta's chief exec, Jeff Mulgam, spoke to Professor Unger about his recent report into the knowledge economy and started by asking him what went wrong with the knowledge economy. What went wrong with it is that the knowledge economy was truncated in its development by virtue of being confined. It is now present in every part of the production system, but present only as a set of fringes that exclude the vast majority 
of businesses and workers. And what, was that a deliberate conspiracy by someone to keep it confined? Uh, it has explanations, but a fundamental uh, reason for this confinement of the knowledge economy is uh, that it was, it is a characteristic expression of what happens in history. There's an innovation in the world and the innovation is often adopted in the form that least disturbs the ruling interests and the established preconceptions. That's what you could call the path of least resistance. And the knowledge economy in its insular form is a typical example of such a path of least resistance. And yet to some people, this economy seems very accessible. Everyone can get Google. Half the world's population has access to the internet. Small right. businesses can set up much more easily than a generation ago. The sale of the products and services of the knowledge economy is easily confused with the actual dissemination of the knowledge economy. Uh, a big company like Walmart or a small business like a laundromat does not become a participant in the knowledge economy simply by virtue of using the gadgets produced and sold by this advanced practice of production. It is a set of practices, a different way of doing things, of making things, and of inventing things. And no one joins it simply by using some of what it makes. So we, we take part as consumers, but not as shapers and makers and producers. Not participants uh, in these islands. Mm. They don't exist solely in advanced manufacture. They exist also in intellectually dense services and even in scientific or precision agriculture, but always in this insular form. And the insularity results in economic stagnation, given that the practice is denied to the majority, in the aggravation of inequality, anchored in the hierarchical segmentation of the economy, and in belittlement. The vast majority of humanity is confined to some kind of make work. Mm. So you've, in your career, been a political thinker and an active politician, a minister. What was the political consequence of the confinement you've described? Uh, it is the uh, limitation of this potentially transformative vanguard to an elite. Uh, then the dispossession of and exclusion of the majority, uh, and thus the creation of resentments and discontent that are now manifest, for example, in the, right, in the rise of right-wing populism in much of the world. Conventional social democracy has been unable to master these problems. The progressives on the whole in the world have contented themselves with humanizing an economic order that they are unable to reimagine and remake. And in some of the analysis, you warn against just trying to distribute the benefits of a growing economy and of automation and artificial intelligence and so on, which is one of the social democratic responses, and argue the need to go upstream and change really the patterns of participation and production. 
So we have to distinguish the more important from the less important. The more important is to reshape the arrangements that determine the fundamental distribution of advantage. The less important is to try to create, after the fact, uh, a different distribution, to correct it through retrospective and compensatory tax and transfer progressive taxation, social entitlements. That redistributive and retrospective correction will always be very limited in its magnitude because if it rises above a modest threshold, it will begin to disorganize the economy and derange the established incentives to invest, save, and employ. And thus, the retrospective correction is really just part of this humanization effort. And you would treat universal basic income, for example, as an extreme form of that compensatory... Well, universal basic income can serve different functions. It could be part of a more ambitious transformative program. If it has as its counterpart the, the opening of the economy to radical plasticity and experiment. And then we would say, the individual has to be uh, safe in a haven of protected immunities and capabilities so that he can strive in the midst of the storm. Hmm. The problem arises when we provide the protection but do nothing about arousing the storm. And that, in general, is the path taken by the passive and conventional social democrats who are the substitutes for the transformative program that we lack. That was Professor Roberto Unger talking with Nestor's chief exec, Jeff Mulgan. So, Madeline, Nestor has recently published this report uh, about all this. What are the, some of the, the problems with the, the shape of the knowledge economy that was found uh, in, in that report, and how are they kind of manifesting themselves? We heard some clues there mm. from, from Professor Unger. Yeah, so what we've done in this report is to collaborate with Professor Unger to um, to articulate his arguments for a wider audience and then to look at what could be done to address some of these problems. So one of the things that, that Unger points out and that we agree with is that the knowledge economy has been, as we said, kind of left kind of captive in these small areas and just a small number of firms. And what that means is that um, people working in those companies are doing very well, um, but those in um, other industries are, are kind of getting left behind. And that and, and that's contributing to growing inequality that we're seeing in a lot of countries um, in, the, in the richer world. Um, another issue is about um, political alienation, and, and Roberto hinted at that in the, the clip that we listened to. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is not just about the confinement in, in particular places that we've discussed, but the fact that some firms and the knowledge economy are becoming very powerful. Um, so you can think of some of the large tech companies now that in some ways are becoming a bit like governments themselves. I mean, they're setting, you know, they're, they're setting the rules for how people can interact in markets. For example, if you're trading on the Amazon marketplace, you know, Amazon is setting the rules for how that market operates. Um, they're innovating in um, employment contracts, for example, and coming up with new ways of employing people. So they're becoming a little bit like governments themselves, becoming very economically powerful. And that means that, um, that there's a bit of a democratic deficit. So people are kind of getting left behind, not able to influence how the economy is being shaped. 
Isaac, um, how might we then go about creating a broader and fairer knowledge economy that gives you know fairer access to these funds and technologies and opportunities uh, presented? well, and, and sort of dangled in front of many people by the knowledge economy, but then doesn't necessarily deliver them. We heard them talking there about going upstream. Mm, yeah. Uh, w- w- what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think so. When we're talking about going upstream, it's useful to kind of think about how our sort of proposed solution is a bit different from some of those which are out there on the in the kind of political, ideological supermarket, if you like. Um hinted again at that conversation, hinted again during that conversation between Roberto and Jeff just now. So, I mean, the dominant response has really been to 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 expect some kind of trickle down, to expect these advanced form of technology is going to trickle down by themselves. But all experience shows that this doesn't happen on its own. Another response has been to let this kind of advanced part of the economy function in the way that it wants to function, but to redistribute some of the wealth after the fact. Um, the problem here is that we're dealing here with the with the symptoms of inequality, but not the causes. And and yes, you can top up people's income, but you're not dealing with the kind of indignity and deprivation that is caused by people being left on the sidelines of uh, in this changing world. So the kind of the way as we see it is to democratize this, this this economy, so that society as a whole has a chance to participate in it and shape in it before any redistribution happens. Um, so that's how we see this, this kind of setting the captive free happening. But doing this is not a kind of minimalist thing. It's not a question of teaching a few more toddlers how to code or getting your local corner shop to take on a big data consultant, any of this kind of thing. Because these are these are these are the gadgets, right? These are the superficial superficial manifestations, but they're not the advanced form of production which takes our economic life closer to the imagination. And to do that, we think that we have to transform the institutions which underpin our underpin our economy. And the three sets of transformations that we discussed in the report, democratizing the economy, building what we call a, a social inheritance, and then also building a high energy democracy. So we can talk about these in a bit more detail, maybe. Mm, well, the social inheritance, mm. that sounds a fascinating concept. Just to explain what that means, what it could mean and what it could mean for all of us. Um, so the idea of the social inheritance is that everyone should inherit something from society as a whole, um, not just from your parents. So the situation we have at the moment, obviously, is that, you know, the uh, family you're born into and the kind of economic circumstances at birth make a huge difference to your chances in life. Um, and what we're suggesting is that needs to be shifted so that everyone has more equal access to resources. And why that's relevant for the knowledge economy is, and again, Roberto hinted at it in the discussion with Jeff, um, you know, we're talking about a period where technologies are going to be transforming the way we live and work very quickly. So there's a sense of disruption, a sense of insecurity, um, and needing to be able to navigate a quickly changing um, sort of economic environment, if you like. And if you have resources and um, sort of a backup behind you that means you can face that confidently. You, you're you're much you're much better equipped to survive it. So in, in a sort of practical sense, um, you know, it's great if you can take time out of your um, your job to retrain. But not everyone can afford to do that. So we're thinking about well, what what could be put in place that meant that everyone could have that sense of going forward into the future with with confidence. And so we think something that is like a, a kind of an endowment that every citizen has could be really helpful. There's lots of different proposals out there for this type of thing at the moment. Um, One came out recently talking about having a kind of um, 
a sovereign wealth fund for the UK that would that everyone might receive some money from at age 25. That's one proposal. In the report, we talk about um, endowments to support lifelong learning because we think that's something that's really missing at the moment. So giving people access to funds that they could draw down at different points in their life to support them to, to train and develop. Wow. And I guess it's also important to understand that the reason why these kind of endowments are important, why this economic security that these kind of forms of endowment or universal basic income might provide is not just important in and of itself. So we're not just happy for people to kind of occupy the excluded place in the market that people currently do, but be propped up by some kind of money coming in every month. The idea is that in the economic part of the program we talk about, there's going to be um, a massive increase in access to capital and advanced technology and advanced capabilities so that kind of small businesses would have much, much easier access to the to the tools to enable them to participate in the knowledge economy and them to take on the advanced practices and them to be competitive and then and for parts of countries which are currently uh, economically rather stagnant to develop local specialities and to work together and to develop these uh, to participate, right? But you're not going to be able to do that. People aren't going to be able to take advantage of those, of those opportunities if they if they don't have the security from which from which to do it. So, what's getting in the way? What 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 are the barriers to stop? We've got this great report. We've got you know big thinkers like Roberto Unger calling for all this sort of stuff. Lovely. So, uh, what what do we need to break down? What barriers do we need to uh, to break before we this can start becoming a reality for everyone? Well, I like the way that Roberto's talked about this as following the path of least resistance. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the fact that, that you know, if you don't do anything to actively make this more more inclusive, it's going to be, just go down the trail of, of you know getting concentrated in these small numbers of firms and places. Um, now, I think what's exciting about the the um, the agenda that we set out in this report is it's really broad ranging. So we're looking for action, as Isaac said, to democratise the economy, to establish this social inheritance, and to re-energize our democracy. So in terms of what gets in the way, well, in one way, it's a very broad ranging agenda, which requires a huge amount of action. But I think one thing that's exciting and optimistic about the message that we have in the report is that you don't need to reform all of this at once. And it's you can do this piecemeal in the way that takes you um, down a road of, of quite radical transformation. Yeah, I think that it's a conception of change where the solution isn't likely to come from one brilliant presidential candidate being voted and then changing everything from the top. Rather, it's about creating the space for institutional experimentation, which is going to be more bottom up and about different regions, different local governments, different civil society institutions, shaping new ways and trying new ways of doing things and, 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 and finding out a little bit what works. So there's a space in there for experimentalism and pragmatism. But in terms of the barriers um, to that happening, I mean, it is a political program. This is not something that, that a set of civil servants can, can just implement because they're clever. This does require political vision and leadership, and, and that requires, by implication, winning elections for a party that's willing to, to, to argue for these things. And I think one of the barriers there is that it requires some um, some rethinking of, the, of, of, of current habits of thought of what progressive politics is about. I like imagining that. I like say. radical. That's, that's <laughs> what we like on this program. Yeah. A bit of radical stuff. I think that's great. So it sounds like 
there's a there's a big agenda there. Um, it's going to require uh, interventions at all different kinds of levels, from safe spaces for experimentation yeah. with the economic models, right through to maybe rethinking about uh, our whole economic um, approach and our political approach too. Mm. Uh, so, are we optimistic that this is going to happen uh, in, in our time? Absolutely. We like optimist optimism in this program, but uh, what are your thoughts to round us off? I think there's some spaces opening up for experimentation around this. So there's a consensus building that um, we do need to tackle inequality, um, that the way that we've been approaching economic growth without thinking about inclusion, uh, you know, can't go on. It's unsustainable, both in terms of if we want to continue growing economies and also um, the recognition that we can't just leave a load of people behind. So, you know, our, our own government and several others across um, you know, the Western world are uh, committing to inclusive growth, for example. So the rhetoric's there. People are looking for solutions. Um, I, th I think that's one reason to be optimistic. I think, uh, what did Gramsci say? Uh, optimism of the spirit, pessimism of the intellect. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I would, invite, I would invite listeners not to blind optimism, but to an optimism that, as we argue a little bit in the report, I guess, you know, the distinctive thing about humans is we have this imagination, we have this ability to imagine a possible world beyond mm -hmm. that, which we, we've grown up in. Um, and that's a distinctive thing about, uh, you know, that imagination is particularly important in the knowledge economy. And if we could unleash that, not only in the context of, a, of an exciting product, but of the way a whole society organizes itself, we could be really onto something. Wow, uh, plenty to be optimistic there. I think you both should run for office. That's absolutely great. Uh, Isaac, Madeline, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us today. Uh, and uh, elsewhere in the podcast series, we'll be talking about how we might be able to uh, combine human and machine intelligence to solve problems across many different domains. Look out for that one. Uh, meanwhile, thank you very much indeed for listening today. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Future Curious with me, Nigel Campbell. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>